it's a family-owned run estate south of Florence in the village of San Casciano on the way direction Siena. Those were familiar words at the Slow Wine Trade Tasting in Austin on January 30th, 2017. It's a family-owned estate on some back road in Italy, untraveled. We've been making wine for generations. We grow many agricultural products. We've goats and other animals. We do the things the traditional way. And now we're in Austin trying to tell the world about it. My name is Mark Rayshap, and today on Another Bottle Down, we'll be featuring the 2017 edition of the Slow Wine Guide and hearing from a handful of producers from some of the lesser-known areas of Italy. Slow Wine is a sister organization to Slow Food, but instead of being supported by member chapters from around the world, it focuses on producing a yearly guide that not only are featuring wineries that are epitomizing the slow wine principles, but also commenting on what really is happening in the Italian wine scene. Let's hear from one of the editors, Giancarlo Garillo, deputy editor, Jonathan Gebser, and Italian wine blogger, Jeremy Parzin. Giancarlo is first to speak. Yes, we, we think that it's very important not to only what, uh, what to do you can uh, find in, in the glass, but for us it's very important that uh, you can find outside the glass. So, uh, Slow Wine is the only guide in Italy, but probably in the world, that visit all the wineries that, uh, uh, mm, that uh, you can find in the guide. Uh, for us it's very important because so we can talk about the wineries after the visit and um, Sure, we, we make also the blind testing, but, but for us it's very important to know better the, how the wineries uh, work to, to, to produce the wines. So not only do you taste, but then you visit the wineries and make sure that they are, are, are abiding by the procedures that, and, and the values of, of slow wine. Yes, first step is the visit and after the tasting with the producer and after we make uh, a lot of blind tasting with uh, a lot of people that uh, work for Slow Food, 200 and more people. Uh, so it's a very big team. And uh, we, we talk about the, the values of, uh, of Slow Wine, that uh, for us is very important the, how they produce the wine, so how they, they grow the, the grape uh, without uh, chemical or uh, with less uh, use of chemical and uh, also the, the, the wine that uh, they speak about the terroir so the, the, the country that uh, they grow the, the grapes so when you taste Sangiovese you, you have to, to taste uh, a real Sangiovese not uh, a Sangiovese that you can find in New Zealand or uh, Napa or another part of the, the world it's very important to, to taste the wine and the wine have to speak the, the language of the, the country that uh, you can uh, it, that, that is where is produced. And Jeremy, you've been writing about Italy and Italian wine for so many years. Your blog, Dubianchi, is uh, one of the uh, great resources. Um, do you think that this guide kind of reflects what's really well what's going on in Italy at the moment? Well, thanks so much for the generous uh, introduction. And so psyched that this tasting is here again in Texas in Austin as a Texan, as an American, as a Texan, as an Italophile wine lover, just like so exciting that they've come back. I mean, 
to me, what's really exciting about the guide, and the guide's pretty young in terms, I think it's 2009 is the first guide. Historically, and I've been, as you said, I've been following Italian wine for a really long time, right? A couple of decades now. There's always been this huge disconnect between the Italian wine media, the American wine media, the Italian wine media, and American wine culture. And I see uh, the slow wine partly because of its ethos and its youthful approach and its youthful culture. It's finally bridging that gap uh, uh, between, you know, when you look at, I'm not going to name any publications or name any editors' names, but when you look at some of the top 100 lists, sometimes young Italians are there scratching their head going, where's this wine and where's, why does this wine, it doesn't smell like wet dog. Uh, that's a very, you know, famous moment between, uh, uh, cr you know, uh, cross-culture, right? And I think that Slow Wine is bridging that gap and bringing it here, of course, gives people access not only to the wineries and the winemakers, but the overarching ethos, if you will, of what Slow is. I know you're excited about tasting a lot of wine today and you just got here, so we won't keep you long, but uh, any, any producers that you're particularly excited about tasting? Um, well, the buzz for me, I, 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 you know, I kind of base it on like how many emails. I get a ton of emails as I'm, you know, these tastings roll around. Everybody's been uh, bugging me. You gotta taste uh, Mesma uh, from uh, Gavi, if I'm not mistaken. So that'll be my first stop for the day. Uh, Jonathan, uh, I would like to have you kind of talk about the the guide and what 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 people who are visiting Italian wine country, what they'll see, uh, well, there are symbols, right? Can you explain a little bit of the symbols that you might find in the guide? Yes, I mean, to make the understanding easier of what kind of winery you, we are talking about, we sort of came up with three different symbols to, to highlight certain kind of um, approaches to winemaking. So we have, first of all, very simple, the coin, which stands for a great value for money and I mean that's quite simple to explain um, we have the bottle which is basically a symbol that indicates a great quality um, from a strict onagoleptic point of view so the tasting wise um, of all the wines throughout the range of the, the winery in question and then in the end we have the snail symbol which is the most important award that we give to a winery and it sums up sort of the quality philosophy of slow food so we as slow food um, usually put quality food quality in terms of uh, we say good clean and fair where clean stands for obviously sus sustainable agriculture and 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 sustainable production method um, good obviously very important you may never forget that wine first of all has to also taste good so wines need to be made in a proper way um, be tasty be healthy and 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 just all around uh, a pleasure to drink and then finally, the fair is a little more difficult to explain as a concept, but we also we like uh, producers to work um, in good collaboration with the community they live in, so um, to, to, to pay share, uh, fair money for their workers, to have uh, decent prices, so we don't, are not expecting producers to sell their wine at low prices, but we would like everyone to be able to afford uh, good wines, um, so, so that's the snail symbol basically. Wonderful. I might ask both of you um, and wrap up with this, where, where the industry is going. I mean, you, you have your finger on the pulse, both of you, Giancarlo and Jeremy. Um, do you see any sort of trends? Are we going more to indigenous grapes? Are we, you know, what, anything that you can kind of say that, that has changed maybe in the past few years of doing the guide? Giancarlo? 
Yeah, for us it's very important the, um, the origin uh, of the wines and also, yeah, also indigenous grapes very important in Italy because uh, is the, the the nations, the countries with more the the number um, big uh, biggest in uh, in the world. Uh, we we have like four hundred and more grapes that at the end are in the in the bottle. So uh, it's a very huge number. And this is one of the, I think, the most important thing in, in, for the Italian analogy. But it's, n it's not the, the only. Uh, I think uh, Italian is it, Italy is very um, strong also for the relationship between price and value. We have a lot of uh, artisan uh, winery that uh, work very well uh, with a. Good, uh, also a good uh, agricultural practices, and uh, also the price are not so so big. And I think in in this event you can find also a very different terroir, Italian terroir, not only yes Piedmont and Tuscany, but also other regions that are very important to to know because uh, some producers are very 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 good producers. Yeah, all 20 regions are being represented here, right? So, Jeremy, any any kind of final thoughts and where, where the industry is going? Well, just that I think Italy it, it continues to emerge as a white, a great white wine producer. Um, and I think when you come to a tasting like this, you see so much. I mean, it's no coincidence that the winery I'm the most excited about tasting is Agave, uh, a white wine from Italy. Uh, so, I, you know, this tasting coming around through Texas and through America, you guys were in San Francisco and New York and, and Seattle this year, uh, ever expanding. It's showing, uh, again, the youthful culture, all the young sommeliers and wine professionals, wine directors, wine buyers, restaurant professionals, that Italy is a force for white wine. Excellent. Jonathan? Um, any kind of final thoughts for you? I mean, hopefully folks are gonna, uh, you know, see the guide and have that direct them. Um, you know, s s wineries that are sustainable, we see higher quality as well. Uh, what, are, what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, that's what we're trying to do to obviously give these wines a chance to, to showcase their wines uh, here, but also to, to promote our idea of, of what, wine, what wine quality really is. So I believe uh, consumers are, have been getting more conscious about what they're drinking uh, for many years now, now and that I think will just keep going. So um, in the end, even if you know your product well, if you're conscious about what you're drinking, it can also give you more pleasure in, in, in enjoying it. So, I mean, we're really convinced about that. So if you give the proper information to consumers, um, it's not just good for the the people have to sell the wine, but the end consumer as well. That's the most important part. I would agree with Jonathan that the quality of all the wines presented in Austin was at an incredibly high level, full of life, energy, and typicity. True evidence that the slow wine principles do really make a difference. Okay, let's start hearing from producers. We'll go from north to south, just like the guide is organized. We'll start in Piedmont, hearing from one of the most acclaimed producers of Dolcetto, Constanza Carlotta Mag is speaking about the winery Marziano Abona in the town of Doliani. Here's Constanza. It's a winery that is located in Doliani and um, it's a family-owned estate. We're getting into the fourth generation and um, 
Uh, it all started with uh, uh, Marciano Bona and then uh, Celso Bona, who is the one who actually reevaluated the variety Dolcetto, that until uh, the end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s, was considered more or less a table wine. Not much to it, uh, very easy drinking. Dolcetto in uh, Italian means little sweet one. So it was a wine that was uh, approachable, easy drinking. And uh, Celso Bona uh, started his wineries with uh, old vines of Dolcetto, so uh, perfectly acclimatized to that territory. Uh, vines that uh, uh, deliver a wine that is uh, uh, drinkable now, but amazingly with an amazing aging potential. So uh, they all grow their vines uh, organically. So uh, it's an organically uh, grown estate. And uh, also, they uh, only work with indigenous yeast. So when, when you see, when you're looking at a dolcetto and you see doliani, it might mean that it's a little bit more um, special, a little bit more concentrated, a little bit richer, a little bit higher quality? Yeah, certainly. Uh, of course, I can't say higher quality or lesser quality because uh, we are delivering a message of a territory. Um, it's certainly different, the dolcetto that you find in Doliani, than the one that you will encounter in Asti, for instance, in the Asti area, because uh, dolcetto is a quite tannic variety. Um, and uh, in Doliani, with uh, his uh, soil and the limestone, uh, it will be a little more powerful and a little rounder. So uh, the wine will be uh, tannic, but uh, with velvety tannins and a little broader than uh, the harsh tannins that you may encounter in other areas uh, of Dolcetto. So, and then he also does Nebbiolo as well uh, it, with, with the Barolo, right? Kind of the king grape of, of Piemonte? Absolutely, because uh, um, Celso Bona, whom I mentioned before, he passed away at an early age. And so Marziano Bona, his son, uh, had to take over when he was uh, only 12 years old. And uh, at first uh, he was uh, just uh, growing dolcetto and then in the 80s he was smart enough to realize the potential of Lange and so he purchased uh, vineyards in the best crews of Barolo and Barbaresco and so now he's able to deliver a wide range of crews uh, top quality of uh, Barolos, Barbaresco, Barbera as well. So Barbara Dalva, I must specify. <laughs> Excellent. Well, well, good luck with everything, and thank you for taking the time. And we're going to taste the Dolcetta di Doliani. I hope so, yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> Let's go a little further east, but still in Piedmont, to the Gavi area. We'll be hearing from Paolo Rossini, one of the three sisters in charge of the winery La Mesma. The guide distinguishes their Gavi Etichetta Gialla, or the yellow label, as a notable everyday wine being more floral on the nose, compact, dynamic, and highly enjoyable in the mouth, made with native yeasts. I'm Paola from La Mesma Winery in Gavi, Piemonte. Okay, so we're in, in Piemonte in northern Italy, right? And then we have Gavi is the, the subsection. And what wines are, is Gavi known for? Well, you would only get a white wine in Gavi. So you're right, it's in Piemonte. Gavi is the first DOCG of white wines in Piemonte. And it's northern Italy, but it's quite close to the sea. So the winds from the sea come into the vineyards, and that's what gives them their sort of special flavor. <laughs> How would you describe, for folks who have not had Gavi, I mean, I think a lot of people describe them as being very mineral. Um, how would you describe Gavi? 
Well, it's, they certainly are mineral. They're sort of very fresh, uh, even crisp, very sort of focused wines, very mineral. They're perfect in this kind of weather. They're lovely. Uh, they go very well with food too, because they're not too aromatic. So what you would get floral notes in your nose, but then in your mouth, it would be very dry and fresh and clean. And so you produce a still white wine, which is what I think most of us think of with Gavi, but you also do a sparkling version. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Well, very proud of that. We produce a Gavi Spumante Metodo Classico, which is a champagne method. So with a second fermentation in bottle and it's a millesime 09, six years early. So it's something quite special. Wow, six years, that's amazing. So you have, and do you produce it every year? Uh, this is 2009 that we're tasting right now, but do you produce it every year or only in good years? No, we only produce it when the weather conditions are fine because we need a good acidity to keep it very fresh even through such a long aging. So not every vintage. Yeah. And so Gavi is known for white wine. Do you produce any red wine or is that, uh, or, or do you have to call it something else? No, it's only white. Uh, you, you can't have a red Gavi, it's got to be white. And in our particular case, we only grow Cortese grape, which is the variety Gavi is made for. And so 25 hectares, Cortese only. That's all we do. Only Gavi. Well, tell us just a little briefly, a uh, brief history about your, your, your property. Well, it's, uh, we, I run this property together with my two sisters. So it's a three sister family affair. But we were not born in a, in a winery. So it's a sort of a second life chance. Uh, it started as a hobby and it grew slowly bigger because we were very enthusiastic about it and we kept on buying nice vineyards and then now it's a full-time job but it's nice because it brings us together the three sisters and we really love making Gavi. One last question so you know I tasted the wines and I think that there's a, a particular life and richness and kind of aromatic expression to the wines how, how would wh what do you think that that where does that come from in your opinion well the good thing about italian wines in general is the very very strong link with the place they come from so they all give a very specific sense of place and gavi is a lovely area rolling hills a lot of woods so you got a vineyard surrounded by woods You've got a lot of wild animals. We are organic farmers, so you also have a lot of insects and different, and biodiversity brings it all to the wine. So that's why you've got this nice feeling of something that's alive. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you all. Boy, it's wonderful to hear Paola's dedication and pride. Next up, we're going to Lombardia, to a region that is completely off the radar in the U.S., called the Lake Garda area. Enrico Di Martino, who owns Casina Belmonte, farms 15 acres of vines, but also cultivates cereals and other fruit for his famous organic fruit juices. My name is Enrico. I come from uh, the north of Italy. Uh, the region is called uh, is Lake Garda region. 
It's actually a big lake. It's the northern area we see in the world where uh, lemon trees are cultivated. Wow. So it's a kind of Mediterranean uh, island in the middle of right in the middle of the Alps. Wow. And so. So that area is known probably mostly for the, the region of Franciacorta, but you're not, you're not quite in that region, right? Right, uh, we are just a little east from Franciacorta, which uh, uh, yeah, it's something around uh, 30 kilometers. And um, we do not do sparkling, but we basically produce rosé wine. And uh, our rosé is called Valtenesi, which is the, this valley, Val, Valtenesi and uh, standing on uh, Lake Arda, actually, right. Yeah. And I, I was very excited to talk to you because you do some grape varieties that probably nobody has ever heard of before. Can, can we talk a little bit about the white, white grape varieties first? So, um, what do you grow up there? Right, the, we cultivate this variety called Manzoni Bianco. Uh, Manzoni is the name of the agronomist who uh, breeded Pinot Blanc with Riesling. And uh, he did that uh, in the 1920s and, uh, in a research institute in the, was quite close from uh, us. And um, well, he breeded a lot of uh, different varieties and then selected the best one. And uh, it, uh, it show up with uh, this one, which is which brings the best characteristic of Riesling and Pinot Blanc. So it's quite aromatic, very fresh, yeah, kind of interesting wine. Wonderful, and then you do a rosé. You were saying that that's maybe one of the things you're most famous for. Uh, what grapes do you use for the rosé? The rosé is actually the uh, most typical wine from the area. So we use this variety which is cultivated there for uh, 700 years, and it's called uh, Groppello. Um, it's quite uh, difficult varieties because of the very thin skin, so it's delicate. Uh, it can be similar to Pinot Noir, uh, not that much color. So what you used for centuries for the production of rosé, so that's why we are still producing rosé. Do you make red wine out of it as well? Red wine with a variety called uh, Ribo, um, which is a, um, yeah, a very interesting red wine. It's very fruity, uh, blackberry, a little licorice. So also in this case, we don't use oak. Uh, all our wines are unoaked, and uh, so you can taste uh, actually uh, the taste of the berry. It's like eating the grape. It's very fresh. Yeah, for me it was it was lovely. You also have this violet aromatics, too, very floral, wonderful wine, and it's it's pretty structured and and pretty rich. I mean, it could it can deal with what what do you normally eat with that grape in your area? Yeah, I would say fresh white cheese or salumi. Yeah. Or um, maybe you can go with uh, chicken or uh, meat, but not too too, too fatty, right? Exactly. <laughs> and um, you, you, the history of your family, this, these are vineyards that have been in your family for, for a while. Tell us a little bit about the history. Yeah, I have to say uh, uh, everything started because uh, my father was patient with uh, horses. Actually, uh, very fascinated by um, like American Western movies and stuff. So I bought uh, the property when he was uh, yeah, a bit younger, 40 years ago. And uh, he was one of the first importing quarter horses in Italy. But then uh, when I, I was born, I had an allergy to horses. <laughs> so yeah, uh, he unfortunately had to sell uh, all the animals. And, uh, Just for you? Yeah. <laughs> then. Um, they also had planted a little vineyard you know, for home consumption 
and uh, then they started, well, so no animal, nothing there. They started to, um, to switch from horses to a little bit of vineyards. Then uh, also I grew up, studied uh, um, agricultural sciences, focused on organic farming. And uh, after university, I started to do it uh, like professionally. And uh, so now it's it's uh, growing a little bit, but still a small production, just uh, six hectares wow. and uh, 40, 35,000 bottles per year. Yeah. Well, wonderful, lovely wines. Thank you for talking and good luck. Thank you for talking, for passing by. My name is Enrico and the winery is Cascina Belmonte. The guide declares that the wine that Enrico was first talking about there, the Valtenesi Chiaretto, as the best version of the Chiaretto, or the darker rosé, ever being made in this area, bright in color, blossomy on the nose and flavorsome in the mouth, produced without added sulfites. That's pretty interesting. We'll continue on with our interviews, but first I'd like to take a moment to talk about what I really appreciate about the 2017 Slow Wine Guide, and I've read it cover to cover several times. When I first got dialed into Slow Wine, I thought it was geared as a travel guide for wine enthusiasts wanting to sport wineries who were doing the right thing. But I've realized it's so much more than this. There's a beautifully designed map of every region before, in the beginning of each chapter, highlighting parts of the land's geographical features, mountains, rivers, etc., perhaps more digestible than any other wine maps out there. Also, there's commentary around each region, discussing trends that have popped up over the last year, and sometimes otherwise it would take several years for it to get to us on the street level here in Texas and in the U.S., Plus, there's a discussion of vintage that is more accurate and substantive than any other resource available out there. I've found myself referencing previous year's guides to give a historical perspective on the direction of the Italian wine evolution. So I'm I'm really happy to have these resources. Okay, let's go to the region south of both Piedmont and Lombardia, to Emilia-Romagna, and a wine that makes every wine lover grin with a childish anticipation, and that's Lambrusco. We'll hear from Angela Sini from Cantina della Volta. My name is Angela. I come from Bumporto. Bumporto is very close to Modena. Wonderful. And so Emilia Romagna and you make wines from Lambrusco, right? Can you tell us about Lambrusco? Yes. Uh, We make wine by a single varietal of Lambrusco, meaning that we only vinify from Lambrusco di Sorbara DOC grapes in purity, which are all manually selected and picked from the vine. And then we approach them in terms of champagne style. We only do champenoise method. Wow, and so, so you're fermenting in the bottle, but you start with these indigenous grapes from Emilia-Romagna. And tell us a little bit about how big the estate is and what you guys are doing in the vineyards. We have uh, institutional, historical uh, people that work for us and uh, sell us the, the grapes. And so, and Lambrusco is a really versatile grape where you can make rosé, right? And you make, and red is the more traditional. Uh, the most traditional, but you know, this country has been flooded with Charmat style, which doesn't allow you to play with colors. We can play with colors because the Creole maceration takes place in the soft pressing machine, which is a French technique where you can govern the length of skin contact. So this is why we can offer it either without skin contact, making it white, or we have a pale rosé coming out from 50 minutes of skin contact. And then we have brilliant ruby red colors coming out from 
8 to 10 skin contact lengths. Wow, so all traditional method, rosé, and, and what are the flavors of this? I mean, I, I think that wine, when you, when you talk to wine people, everybody gets really happy when they, when they see Lambrusco. And you've, you've seen a lot of happy people here, right? Yeah, Lambrusco has a link with happy people, of course, because it is an easy, enjoyable wine to share with friends. It is, the beauty of Lambrusco is something totally unexpected and we are trying to offer the very best beauty of it. So we have seen faces astonished at the show because they really didn't expect to find something so interesting in the glass. And the, the nose is wonderful because it's a mixture of flowers and cherries and red berries. Uh, it's very much appealing. Very wonderful. What What is your favorite thing to eat with Lambrusco di Sorbada? The easy to go things. If you think about a tray of mixed charcuterie, cold cuts and Italian cheeses, that's the best pairing you can try. <laughs> oh, with our yeah, rosé, yes. yeah, unexpectedly we found out that our rosé has a perfect food pairing sushi. <laughs> perfect, well wonderful, we'll, we'll keep on enjoying your wines. Can you tell again your name and the name of the winery? Yes, Angela from Cantina della Volta. And I am Anna from Cantina della Volta. Yep, hard to find traditional method Lambrusco these days, and Cantina della Volta is just delicious. We'll keep on moving south to Tuscany, which is certainly one of the behemoths of Italian wine. Alioska Goldschmidt is grandson of the founder of this upcoming winery, and the Slow Wine Guide states, Cortano e Paterno is a complex agricultural organism, a model for a new generation of farmers who believe in the diversification of agronomic disciplines as a sine qua non for maintaining biodiversity and achieving self-sufficiency. Let's hear from Alyoska. Alyosha Goldschmidt from Fattoria Corzane Paterno. It's a family-owned run estate south of Florence in the village of San Casciano, on the way direction Siena. And of course, so Chianti, but you, you blend other grapes in, right? Yeah, I mean, our main variety is Sangiovese, but in our Chianti we only blend local, typical variety, which is called Canaiolo. In this wine we have about 15% of Canaiolo. We never blend in our Chianti any varieties like Cabernet Merlot, Syrah, or not, not indigenous varieties. And, and that's allowed by law, right? By law it's allowed to add until 20% of complementary varieties, and the list of these complementary varieties is endless. You can name me whatever variety you know, and it's probably on that list. <laughs> Here we have uh, 2013, it's 100% Sangiovese. It's the best selection of Sangiovese from the estate. So all the So wines, now you're not in the Classico zone, right? We're 100 meter out, we are just on the border. In the village of San Casciano, which have a very distinctive soil. It's gravelly sea sediments, very different from the Panzano, Rada, higher up Galestro soils. Normally gives more elegant wines with slightly lower acidity. But, but, but you, still, you still are able to achieve the acidity levels that makes fresh wine. I mean, these wines are oh quite yeah, fresh. No, oh yeah, sure, sure. But I mean, too high acidity once in a while is, makes it more difficult to, to enjoy. With lower acidity helps to have a more elegant, balanced wine. Wow, I, lo 
I mean, there's beautiful complexity, leather notes, and um, the, cherry, you know. the cherry aroma from the Sangiovese, and still, it's a, it's a very, very balanced wine. It has a lot of complexity without being over-extracted or too tannic, and that's the art in winemaking, to have balance in the wine. To make a big wine is quite easy, but to have a great balanced wine is much more challenging, especially from a single, single varietal, who gives you less chance by, by, balance, by blending to... Okay, so our last wine here is the... Is it's, uh, the third wine is a blend of Sangiovese and Cabernet Sauvignon. So a totally different aromatic profile, more complexity, but less typical for the region. Finally, we're traveling south, again, much further, to Sicily. And we'll hear from one of the prominent producers of Mount Etna. The Slow Wine Guide gives a little double-edged commentary of Etna stating, Etna continued its unstoppable rise, a terroir in which everyone who is anybody is buying up vineyards and or building cellars. They're even coming down from far away Piedmont. If things go on like this, we'll soon be needing a second volcano. The Benanti family was one of the first, and we'll get to meet Antonio Benanti here. My name is Antonio Benanti, and the winery's name is also Benanti. And where in Italy? So you're based in Sicily, on the side of the the volcano of Mount Etna. Uh, I'd like you to tell us how, what, why that's a special place. It's a very special place for grapes, right? Yes, you're right. Uh, the winery is based on the slopes of the Etna volcano. Strictly, we are in Sicily. Uh, that's right. But I say we are surrounded by Sicily in that the wines from Mount Etna only account for maybe four or five percent. Uh, of the old Sicilian volumes. It's very much of a niche area and it is very different for three main reasons. One of them being the climate. You now it's a mountain, 10,000 feet tall mountain with vineyards even close to uh, 3,000 feet. So we harvest in October. The rest of the island, that's a good indicator, the rest of the island harvest from August through September and again it's just minutes away. So it is a very much, it's a very different climate, it's a mountain climate. So Etna wines are mountain wines. Second thing, it's a volcano, so it's a volcanic soil. The rest of the island of Sicily is, does not have volcanic soil, with few exceptions in the smaller islands around Sicily. So we have a unique soil, and that's why you'll find the crispiness, the salinity, the minerality in the wines, and a different climate. And on top of that, we also have indigenous grapes. Yeah. One of them is called Carricante, for the white, with one exception that I know of a, sea, of a vineyard outside Etna, Carricante only grows in the whole world on Mount Etna. And the two reds, Nerello Mascalese, Nerello means pale black. Mascalese means from Mascali, the town of Mascali on Etna. And Nerello Cappuccio, they have been, uh, they are grown here and there outside Etna, but they're by far mostly on Etna. So we can really say that we make wines on a different climate, different soil, with different grapes. So it's very much non-mainstream Sicilian wines. They are simply Mount Etna wines. And your family has been active there for a long time. Uh, talk about how, how many wineries there were when you started and, and talk a little bit about your family's evolution. Um, my great-grandfather, uh, Giuseppe Benanti, he started to grow grapes there on the slopes of Etna in the late 1800s. My grandfather was not that interested, he just kept them barely, barely going. And then my father is the one, my father Giuseppe, we are all named Giuseppe, Antonio, Giuseppe, Antonio. 
my father Giuseppe in 1988, 29 years ago, he's the one who actually founded the proper winery with a with a proper cellar and bottling facilities and aiming uh, aiming very high, aiming at producing world-class wines. So when we started, there were uh, two incumbents, two wineries that existed, not aiming too high, not really uh, known, and my father did not use them as a benchmark. He actually resorted to consultants from world-class areas like Burgundy and Piedmont, Lange. Um, so we started in 1988 and we went on almost by ourselves until 2001. Then more producers came. By the mid-2000, there were maybe 15 of us. And now, in 2017, there are 131 producers, so it's an area that is really booming. But it was only three of us when we started 29 years ago. Well, the wines are very special, right? Caricante, I mean, they have this energy and um, balance to them. That's what you strive for. Um, talk about a little bit of philosophy in making the wine. Yes, uh, the idea is, of course, because we're a boutique producer, it's only 150,000 bottles, not cases, bottles. Then uh, it really follows that, you know, when you are so boutique and when you come from such a unique territory, your only duty must be to make sure that in the glass you'll, you'll find territory. Territory must be reflected in what you drink. So it, we are not creative. We only use the the uh, indigenous grapes. Uh, for white wines, for Carricante, uh, we don't blend Carricante with anything else. No stainless, uh, no oak, just stainless steel. So you'll find something that is very typical. And when, when you do that, you'll find the very uh, unique features of Carricante, the acidity, the salinity, the crispiness, the minerality, the, the lightweight, the very sharp tension. And they're very much uh, wines that uh, they, they target a niche, but that's what Etna is. In terms of reds, we either use stainless steel only for the Nerello Cappuccio grape, uh, that is very, very rare on Etna, or for the far mo more important Nerello Mascalese, more widespread grape. We just use a touch of oak just to refine the tannin, but you will not taste any of that. It's always large barrels. It's really just one of the uh, tools we use just to keep the authenticity of the wine. So Mount Etna wines will be the typical wines of from an altitude and on a volcanic soil. They're always with a very nice salinity, you always find this crispiness and minerality. They're lightweight wines, they're pale colors, they're not very intense, not very fruity, always very, always very uh, refined, elegant wines, very very polished. So very much wines that are food friendly as well. When you have a low alcohol perception, when you have a medium body, when you have a lightweight, when you have salinity, your wines are not overwhelming, they don't dominate on any recipe, and they very, very much, they are very suitable for pairing with food. So that's how I would recommend drinking at the wine. Well, I hope you've enjoyed our little whirlwind tour of Italy and urge you to check out the 2017 Slow Wine Guide. There's so much valuable and relevant information within. We'll keep on staying in touch with the wonderful producers we've met and look forward to next year's tour as well. Hopefully they'll come back to Austin, Texas. Please? Another Bottle Down is a production of Co-op Radio and the Illuminated Bottle in Austin, Texas. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And like us on Facebook and Twitter. 
to get the latest in wine information and commentary. We'll see you next week, folks.